Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction. I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm a science fiction writer who thinks a lot about science. And our guest today is Catherine Trendacosta, who we know from way back at io9 when she started out as some lowly position and worked her way all the way up to managing editors. So she was the last set of interns, I think. Yeah, Uh, from intern to managing editor. Yeah, so she's like basically a superhero. And now she's working at our friend the Electronic Frontier Foundation as a policy analyst with her law brain. Mm -hmm. So, But she's going to be here in her capacity as a cultural critic. And what we're talking about today is nostalgia in science fiction. What is it? Why do we keep doing remakes? Why it's kind of a problem? And also, how our nostalgia for past science fiction and past times is shaping the future of this genre? So we will be talking about all of that. And also, this is your reminder that we have a Patreon. Our Mm. opinions are correct. Um, It has almost reached halfway to our goal, which is just to pay for making this darn show because we love you. And so if you want to support us, that would be fantastic. All you have to do is give us a dollar or give us some press gold latinum. We'd really appreciate it. All right, here we go. Is your nostalgia garbage or is it great? Thanks for being on the show, Catherine. Ooh, thanks for having me. So good to have you here. Yeah, it's yeah. nice to to be able to have this important conversation with you about nostalgia. So basically, when we talk about nostalgia in science fiction, we mean a lot of different things. Like one thing we can mean is people being super invested in shows they watched as kids. So it can be, you know, my obsession with Star Trek or someone else's obsession with Harry Potter, or it can be science fiction, which is itself kind of nostalgic for a previous era of science fiction, so kind of golden age science fiction being made in the present. And there's a lot of other permutations, and we're going to talk about all of that today. But I want to throw it out to you guys, to you, Charlie and Catherine, to tell us a little bit about the most obvious kind of nostalgia that we're dealing with right now, which is reboots and sequels. So what the fuck is a reboot? What the fuck is a sequel? (laughs) What the hell is happening? Tell us more. Uh, Yeah. Um, (laughs) I can can see both of you kind of got this like thousand yard stare. Well, my like law brain kicked in and a whole thing about like, because the way we're seeing it right now really is like a capitalization on a whole large generation that is now adults with disposable income by corporations who own IPs and therefore don't have to pay for the generation of new things and don't have to think too hard about whether this is going to capture interest. Like that's what are you what are you subtweeting here? Are you subtweeting I'm, Star Wars? Or I'm subtweeting. Well, I'm, Disney in general, okay, um, just bu- has been buying IP. Right? They bought Star Wars and they bought Marvel and they've been rebooting their own IP. Like the nightmare that is to my mind, even though it has a great cast. 
the idea of a and it, it's not live action it's CGI but doing the Lion King shot for shot the same but just yeah, in CGI right is not a th- it's because the, I was a kid when that came out and now I'm 30 and we have money and we're gonna go and you want to <laughs> and for some reason you want to see the lion's hair look really realistic and Beyonce <laughs> plays a character that doesn't sing like it's yeah what is that they, uh, clearly there's I bet they've like inserted a song but like that's a that is the like commercialized nostalgia that we are seeing right which is a very lazy form um, and that's the reboot. That's the reboot form of, of this kind of nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the thing that's interesting in pop culture right now versus like 10 years ago on io9, we were kind of like ranting against sequels and remakes and reboots and things. The thing that's really new and different now is that it's not just enough to bring back the old IP. Everything has to come back. There has to be like you have to get Harrison Ford to come back and play every role he's ever played. <laughs> like any part that Harrison Ford CGI played at the, start him of in his, there. at the start of his career, he has to come back and play that role again. You know, start the Star Wars movies have to bring back all the old actors. Uh, the Jamie Lee CGI. Curtis has to come back to ha- Halloween. Yeah, and like all of that. You know, the new Terminator movie is going to have Linda Hamilton and Arnold Schwarzenegger just to make sure that it's got enough ties. And you've got to have like constant shout outs to old things. You've got to have like constant Easter eggs and constant like, you know, Star Trek Discovery had to have Harry Mudd. It had to have like all these little kind of dark nods. Harry Mudd. <laughs> dark murderous Harry Mudd. I know. And it's, it's with time it's travel. Because the audience is so fragmented. There's so many entertainment options in 2018. There's so many things that we can all be watching that in order to hook an audience, you have to really pander to them. You can't just slightly pander to an audience anymore. You have to just like full on pander with like both barrels loaded with like just with shout outs and Easter eggs and crap. You've also got the circular thing where the people writing this stuff now mm-hmm. were the fans when they were kids, mm-hmm. and this stuff is still popular. Like the thing George Lucas had to do with Star Wars is that no one wanted to make sci-fi serials anymore, so he had to make his own. Like no one would give him the rights to remake a thing. So that's he wanted why he, to do Flash Gordon. He wanted to do Flash Gordon. That's what I couldn't remember. I was like, it's not Buckaroo Banzai. Why can't I remember <laughs> which one it is? It's not Buck Rogers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he couldn't make. Flash Gordon. He couldn't, so he uh, reinterpreted and used it as a as a jumping off point. But the people who are fans of Star Wars, Star Wars is still going. Disney will hire you to just do Star Wars. Right, 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 right. Um, and that's not a bad thing, right, to have fans doing it. Like, right. that's, that can be a good thing. But it doesn't incentivize Disney to give money to other people. Right. And when we live in a world where everything has to be a giant tentpole and there are no mid level films supported by studios mm-hmm. and science fiction in particular tends to need a budget more than say if you wanted to do an indie rom-com right then this is the problem this is what we run into i want to intervene into this trashing of disney and, and star wars for a fine. minute um it has <laughs> you know it's fully deserved but the thing that's interesting with star wars right now if we discount the horrible travesty that was solo is that it's not rebooting, it's sequels, right? I mean, there is rebooting and there's like all these, you know, it's like we have to have another spherical object in space and all that kind of thing. But we're seeing new characters, it's a new generation, and we're getting a new generation of people involved, like Ryan Johnson, for example, who did come out of an indie film background. And so it's when you're saying like, well, they aren't incentivized to give money to people, you know, who are doing new stuff. It's like, well, I mean, Ryan Johnson did something that was original enough 
that it got people pissed or like it like got Russian bots pissed or whatever. (laughs) Right. Um, Or, you know, so I think that to me is kind of where it's interesting to kind of tease out the difference between a reboot, which is kind of slavishly recreating the original, like the way J.J. Abrams has done with Star Trek versus a reboot, which is trying to reimagine a beloved universe. And I'm not saying that that it succeeds. I'm not saying that that's a great thing, but I do think there's a difference. And this also gets me to the important point about Harry Potter. (laughs) I wanted to say something real quick about Star Wars because I am your requisite like fan of the old EU. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm going to start this off with saying that generally speaking, despite like what people seem to think my opinion is, I think most things are fine. Like they're fine. <laughs> they're not. The problem with the internet generally is that everything has to be high drama. Or has to be the best thing ever yeah, or the, the best worst or the thing. Most horrible, Whereas yeah. most things are fine. Like I actually think Solo was fine. Like I have no memory of seeing it, but I wasn't mad. Um, <laughs> I was actually. I I felt like there was some. There were missed opportunities. There were missed opportunities, but like all it should all, have it been Lando. Fine. I'm like Team yeah. Lando. And like I think that's actually generally the rule with Star Wars recently. They've all been fine. And Ryan Johnson did something unique and different. I actually was talking with someone about the old EU was real weird. Like people Mm -hmm. did some weird things in the universe of Star Wars. And when you know that, you really can sort of see the flatness in the sort of Disney Star Wars. Again, all fine. Like the average quality, probably higher. The quality of the old EU had real highs and lows, but it was always weird. And people Mm -hmm. were trying to do interesting things in that universe, whereas... Disney seems to have given people like lists of things that are acceptable and not acceptable in a much more restrictive way. And again, it's fine. It's Uh all fine. I I like seeing new Star Wars. It's fine. But there really is a difference between like the experimental days when George Lucas didn't care. Like he would nix certain things. Like there were some things that you were not allowed to do. But like, you know, you've got Jedi and droid bodies and like Mm -hmm. you've got a lot of really strange things. Um, And that's sort of less what you see. And in fact, you sort of also see Disney really scared of that kind of, or not, like, Rian Johnson's the only one who successfully finished a movie that he was hired to make with an indie background. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's interesting. I mean, what you're saying about Star Wars could equally be true of Star Trek, could equally be true of Doctor Who. There was a period where the Star Trek novels were incredibly weird and incredibly experimental. The Star Trek comics, a lot of the Star Trek tie-in media during that era when either before The Next Generation came along or during when there was a lot of Star Trek TV on the air, but the books were just kind of doing their own thing, there was a lot of really weird experimentation in Star Trek novels, especially in the 80s, I think. And then the Doctor Who novels in the 90s were also doing, and the big finished audio, audio dramas yep. were doing some really just kind of bizarre things, especially those novels. And like I think that part of that is that there was a period when a lot of these franchises were kind of like lying fallow when there wasn't as much official product or like new movies or new like fancy stuff the people who owned the ip were just kind of not paying as much attention but i think that part of the kind of pandering that we're seeing now is that it's not just going to be more star wars or more more star trek or more whatever it's going to have the elements that you remember from when you were a kid it's going to have them the way you remember them to some extent it's going to give you that thing again it's going to bring back luke and leia and han it's going to bring back spock on Star Trek Discovery. It's going to bring back, like, Spock has now been played by how many actors? Because, like, there's been, like, a bunch of Spocks. To be fair, Spock is awesome. Yeah, but, but yeah. So I mean, we don't, other Vulcans. Yeah, we could so have had different plenty Vulcans. of other characters. But yeah. also, the problem with Discovery tends to be when they said it, I think. Right. It's not just a prequel. It is a prequel running really close 
to a really famous series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, so they setting up the they, series. Yeah. yeah. And it sets themselves up for failure because they have to keep explaining things that they wouldn't have to do. It's if like they a didn't giant retcon. Yeah. Like the entire show is just like us dancing elaborately around this retcon and like how do we make it all work? And right, I right, find right. that that's the most frustrating part because yeah. I want to know Burnham's story. Like what a fucking interesting story. Yeah. And like she's a, a great character. Could have said it way in the future from the last time we were in Star Trek. And she could have been, like, Spock's descendant. Yep. And then it wouldn't have been, like, his second secret sibling he never told anyone about. Yeah, I like <laughs> the idea of her being, I know. Oh, that's right. I forgot about Cyborg. <laughs> yeah. Or whatever. Oh, we need... after they announced it, I went back and rewatched it, and I went, oh, this is, that's, that's a bad idea to remind oh people God. this happened. Oh, okay, God. I wanted yeah. to just make sure that before we leave behind our feelings <laughs> about uh, reboots and, and sequels that we talk a little bit about Harry Potter. Yep. So, okay, you'd think that having five new films kind of set in a different time with different characters would actually be kind of great, like that that would be an opportunity for them to explore new stuff. So what the hell went wrong with the Grindelwindle Zindel? J.K. Rowling wrote um, uh, Quidditch Through the Ages and uh-huh. Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. They're two sm- I owned them both. They're two small books that are like meant to be like Harry and Ron's textbooks or books they owned and they have notes in them. And they were like sold, f- like the first sets were sold for like charity. I don't understand why when they were like let's do new stories in this universe they plucked one of those books out and went well clearly this exists we have to tie it to this existing book that is a textbook yeah i wonder if it's kind of what we were just talking about of wanting to just somehow anchor it in in something fans knew yeah yeah i wanted to change the subject slightly and just ask are we finally at the end of like 80s nostalgia now that we've had Stranger Things we've had Ready Player One we've had all this other stuff that's like just celebrating random crap from the 80s are we finally ready to be free of of the 1980s and Spielberg mania and all that like is that finally over I don't know I mean I just saw Ready Player One on an airplane which is pretty much what it deserved Um, that was a (laughs) giant pile of garbage Um, the book was not that bad I thought the book was okay but um, the movie was terrible and so there's certain eras that we return to again and again and I feel like the 80s at this point with the generation that's kind of running Hollywood the 80s is the the era we go back to when we're thinking about high-tech stuff like mm-hmm. somehow, even though we completely surpassed every piece of tech that existed in the 80s, it's still like our go to for like wonderment and like, you it's, know. It's the golden age of geek culture to a, a yes. certain generation of, yeah. of people. What do you think, Catherine? I think it's the generation that's in charge that's 100% true, right? I was born so late in the 80s, I have no memory of it. Uh-huh. Um, but it's even just fine. so, <laughs> like. We're not at 90s. Like, when you try to think about the 90s, what would you try to think of? Like, mm-hmm. on the other hand, 90s fashion is coming back in a big way, so I'm, I'm real glad I kept all my chokers. Um, I, like, the 80s is not just sci-fi golden era. I also think in terms of visual media for science fiction, it's way more iconic than you'll find for a while, and I think that's also why it keeps coming back, right? Like, people want to want to make movies that look like those filmmakers, whereas 90s nostalgia in this space looks like what? The Matrix? But The, the Matrix, Yeah. But The Matrix... And also, everyone remade The Matrix for, like, 10 years after The Matrix came out, and, and it's... And also, I feel like The Matrix is partly 80s nostalgia already, yeah. because it's all about cyberspace. Mm-hmm. And also, I feel like the style of The Matrix, just the actual, like, the camera work and that kind of thing, that really became, like, the 2000s, you know, yeah. and that, and so... That's, yeah. 
So it, it isn't even really a 90s thing. Like, no, it lasted so far into the 2000s, you yeah. don't really have nostalgia for that. I'm not going to make this prediction like I'm Nostradamus because I'm bad. But I think there's a whole big chance that we go straight to just doing the 2000s really close to the 2000s. We're kind of seeing that again because we're in the 400th Spider-Man telling, even though Into the Spider-Verse is going to be great. The, the live action ones we've just been making over and over. Yeah. And I was going to say the thing about the 90s is the 90s was not other than like sort of some TV science fiction, it was not a big era. And I mean, the Terminator is is 90s. And so you could say maybe Westworld is like 90s nostalgia, but really it's not at all. I mean, in terms of like nostalgia for like movies about robots or something. But the 90s, you know, what was really popular then was true crime. And so to the extent that we have this incredible fascination with true crime now, that's kind of a 90s nostalgia. You know, and in fact, a lot of true crime stories that I listen to are about crimes in the 90s, which is kind of interesting. So in the 80s, actually, I'm also someone who listens to a lot of true crime. Or watches shows based on true crime while reading the thing it's based on, Wikipedia entries on the thing it's based on while <laughs> I watch. Or listening to, like, podcasts that are recapping true crime podcasts. <laughs> yeah, so I don't, I think, in answer to your question, Charlie, like, it's a good question. I think that we're still coping with the legacy of the 80s, and especially right now because we've entered in the U.S. and in the U.K., we're in a kind of new conservative era and Mm -hmm. so I think that's also making people think back to the 80s they're like wait when was the last time we had this kind of new wave of of grassroots populism um, and that was the 80s the 80s was also huge late stage capitalism and we are (laughs) not that we ever left late stage capitalism but like the the awareness of consumption is once again at those 80s levels where we're looking at them and being like what is happening and you know politics and entertainment are like merging so, you know, because we in the 80s, we had a movie star president. Now we have a reality star president. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of like PTSD. <laughs> a lot of, like, yeah, there like, are PTSD is like the flip side of nostalgia, I feel like, in a weird That's way. That's an interesting way of looking at it. I like the idea that nostalgia is sort of like the kind of the sugar coating on the kind of pill of, of trauma, trauma mm-hmm. and, and, you know, mis- suffering that we have to reenact over and over again. You know, and I think it's interesting to think we when we, we did our episode about fandom with Naomi Novik, we talked a lot about nostalgia as conservatism, as like not wanting to things to change, as like leading to these fan backlashes where people get harassed and where there's like yeah. at its darkest formulation you have, you know, fans kind of going after diverse creators and trying to hound them out of fandom. Is that the inevitable endpoint of nostalgia? Is that an inevitable byproduct of indulging in this kind of like knee-jerk love of things from the past? You mean does it have to be conservative? Or does it have to turn dark and ugly? I'm going to once again go with my watch what phrase like everything is fine. Nostalgia, <laughs> nost- but like as a median point, nostalgia is fine. I think the problem with nostalgia in this context that you're talking about is that there are two kinds similar to like – uh, in fandom, there's like collecting fandom and fact-based fandom, which tends to be coded as very male and right. very white. And then like female and queer and people of color fandom is transformative because when you're not represented, you have to find some way to, to make something your own. Uh, and that tends to be devalued in our culture. And so I think the same thing with nostalgia, right? The white, male, straight nostalgia that causes people to come so hard at the idea that this thing from my childhood, if you change it, you are saying that because I liked it as it was, I was bad and wrong. You are now ruining my childhood. 
and you cannot do that because it meant so much to me versus the nostalgia fandom of I really loved this. Let's keep perpetuating it and changing it so that it's always around in a form, but like a form that's better. Mm -hmm. So there's like two kinds of nostalgia. Uh, There was this thing I was thinking about tweeting recently about like name a thing that you never saw, but you know a lot about because of fanfic. Mm -hmm. I've never seen the Sentinel or Due South, but they pop up in fandom constantly and so are reinterpreted in fandom constantly or like their premises are attached to other things. Mm-hmm. And so I know a lot about these things I've never seen. And that's a way of keeping something alive in a transformative way that I think is healthy and good and allows a lot of people to appreciate something they may not necessarily have. And then you've got how dare you make my characters, these characters from this show I watched as a child gay, my world is over. Um, right. And that's a that's a different kind of nostalgia. That's a conservative form of nostalgia versus, I think, a, a liberal form. And that's a I collected this thing and it's going to sit here pristine collectivization fandom form of nostalgia mm-hmm. versus a transformative form. It's interesting because like not to belabor the PTSD thing, but the, even the language that conservative fans use, you ruined my childhood or they'll say like you raped my childhood. Oh like gosh. it's so interesting, though, because it's the language of trauma. Yeah. It's like you've reached back into their childhood and like abused them as children by transforming these stories. And I think. You know, it speaks to something in nostalgia that like nostalgia is this conservative. It's like it's pushing away trauma. It's not acknowledging historical change because historical change is often traumatic and growing up is traumatic and like having to learn new stuff is traumatic. And so that's why we cling. I think that's why small C conservatism and nostalgia kind of fit together because it's on an emotional level. It's about pushing away, knowing about that change and pushing away even knowing that at the time that they were enjoying Star Wars, that there were all these people who maybe were being left out and, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe they were even being left out. That's the thing is it's it's not, you know, the people who have that kind of nostalgia are not always white dudes. Yeah. They're just the um, loudest. They're the loudest. And like and it, I mean, of course it is. They are associated. But like I think that there is that that urge to like just don't change the thing because it hurts me. It makes me, forces me to remember my childhood in a way that I don't want to remember. Going back to Harry Potter for a second, um, I went to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter in Universal Studios last year. I went twice, actually, mainly because I was given a gift of a year pass and using it just once Uh seemed insane, but I also lived close by and and all these things. But it was, I will be like dead serious, like it was the most fun I'd had in a really long time. Um, And it was reminded me like why I liked Harry Potter in the first place after this intense trauma of how bad Fantastic Beasts had been to my brain. But there was something about like being immersed in this world and like in a place where like they hand you a wand and it like activates things around and like re brings back these memories of like pretending to have a wand as a kid. That was like really great. And I really enjoyed it while simultaneously understanding that the price they were charging was hilariously absurd and that everything costs way more than it should. That moment really did like remind me that I loved something as a kid and that it meant something to me as a kid. Yeah, so moving on a little bit, like one of the biggest kind of debates in fan culture and just in generally in media is between like remakes, reboots, sequels versus like quote unquote original stuff. And it's an open question. Does something being an original work, you know, being like a brand new thing, make it necessarily can make it better? Would we rather have things like, for example, the reboot of Battlestar Galactica or the new She-Ra versus like, you know, name any number of things that were a brand new piece of IP that ended up just not being that great. 
you know, is there something intrinsically better about something being original? Does it give us an opportunity to tell a different story or to, to kind of throw out some of the baggage of the past? I mean, I'm a big proponent of the idea that it doesn't have to be original to be a new kind of story because right. we're we're talking here about fantasy, science fiction, horror. These are genres that play on a lot of the same stories over and over, even if it's brand new. Like even if you're telling the story of Ex Machina, which was a very original film, and I think a lot of the reason why it got so much critical acclaim was that people saw it as being like, whoa, it's not based on anything, and yet it has thoughts. <laughs> um, but you know, that's a classic Fembot story. You know, that can you can trace that all the way back to mm-hmm. you know Metropolis and and beyond before that so it's not as if that is a, an original idea that mm-hmm. you know that a robot would you know develop its own thoughts and be really pissed off there's almost like a subgenre of sci-fi that is quote unquote original sci-fi and i was thinking about this a lot because you know one of the most important science fiction novels of the late 20th century neuromancer by william gibson has never has famously never been adapted as a movie and it's not because William Gibson is against it at all. Like, he's like, fine, I've sold it a million times. Like, make a movie. He's not, you know, being precious about it, right? But I was thinking about how even though it never became a franchise, there were all of these films that were basically trying to do what Neuromancer did. And some of them were really cheesy, like Free Jack, Lawnmower Man, Circuitry Man, great films of the late 80s and early <laughs> 90s that were basically about cyber and, like, jacking cyber. in. And, and Cyborg. And then you had great stuff like The Matrix, which is just totally a retelling of Neuromancer, right down to like, there's an AI in the system somewhere, dude. What's it doing? And jacking in with the jack in the back of the head. Um, there's the series Max Headroom from the mid-80s um, and late 80s, depending on whether you were in the UK or the US, um, which was also about cyberspace, sort of TV space and like media as politics. And so what happened was instead of getting a whole bunch of things that are set in like the Neuromancer slash Sprawl universe, you get a whole bunch of so-called original stories. So it has its own genre of like, it's an original cyberpunk story. And yet it's still kind of like doing rebooting and sequeling of Neuromancer. What I'm trying to say in this long digression in which I happily got to mention Free Jack in this, in this podcast is that really there's not that much of a difference between a so-called original story and a story that's based on something else. It's really what you do with it. You can do something fantastic and original and groundbreaking with something that's in a known brand. We were just talking about the new Spider-Man animated movie, which is going to be, um, well, I'm predicting it's going to be amazing mm-hmm. and, and, and interesting and different. And you can do something really lousy with an original film that is just you know, boring. Or you can have something like Pacific Rim where... You know, people are pissed because it's too derivative of kaiju movies, but they're also pissed because it's not a Transformers movie. And so you just you kind of lose on both sides. I actually don't think the problem with nostalgia is fans and or whether one is better than the other. I think it's as with a lot of things. I'm going to name someone who I know in real life. So it's a little weird. But um, Lindsay Ellis uh, did a YouTube video about the musical boom. Mm-hmm. And about how Hollywood was spending money on musicals and then it killed it. It just ran out of money and it was like it just like killed the musical for a very long time. And, and she likens it to this tentpole thing mm-hmm. that we're seeing now. And I think that is a larger problem is the banking on nostalgia mm-hmm. as a money generator rather than by studios, rather than whether you can tell good or bad stories. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that part of the problem right now is that, as I said earlier in the episode, there's all this fragmentation in entertainment. People don't go to the movies like they used to. Like, movie audiences have dwindled, except for when there's, like, one movie that everybody wants to see. And so the spoils have gotten a lot bigger for, like, the handful of movies that actually get people to show up. But those do tend to be known quantities. They do tend to be known kind of properties. And I think that, you know, what you would hope if there's an original quote-unquote concept, the difference between like Pacific Rim versus like doing a new Godzilla movie or doing a new, you know, Transformers movie, you know, Pacific Rim, it clearly has like a lot in common with Transformers and Godzilla and other kaiju movies. It clearly borrows a lot from them. What you hope will happen when you have like a brand new quote-unquote franchise is that it can take some more risks. It can go down pathways that maybe, you know, a Godzilla movie has to include certain things because it's part of the what people expect from Godzilla, whereas the kaiju in Pacific Rim can do whatever the hell they want to, and they can be like half kaiju, half Jaeger, like in the sequel. You can have like things that are really out of left field, and that doesn't always happen for sure. It's the difference between, for example, bringing more inclusion to the established superhero universes or to Star Wars. Like, it's like, yes, we're going to do Star Wars and it's going to be the same old stories, but this time there's going to be more people of color and women in it versus like having a story that actually from the ground up builds in more inclusion and more consideration of topics that are not usually allowed to be talked about in Star Wars movies. And like what you hope for from original franchises is that they will actually break new ground. And it just doesn't happen as often because even when you're doing something original, it's still part of the genre. And the genre has its own expectations, I guess. Yeah, I think that you guys are talking about two different things. Catherine is saying that there's this limitation just that's basically money. It's just Mm -hmm. pure capitalism. It's like, we don't want to make a movie that isn't going to make money. Right. And we know that audiences will go for that. And so that's kind of limiting the stories that we can tell. But then there's also the limiting of stories by genre itself, mm-hmm. you know, the kinds of things that we expect from the genre. Um, and as you were saying the thing about Godzilla, I was thinking of Shin Gojira, which mm-hmm. is the new Japanese Godzilla film, which tells a story that's totally weird and different and has never been told in in the whole history of Gojira films. There's never been a movie that's about, like, dealing with, like, environmental disasters using, like, a flat, management structure and like (laughs) trying to like coordinate between different government bureaus which is like essentially what that entire movie is about with like a few amazing shots of Gojira who mostly spends the movie frozen in the middle of Tokyo like it's a story about Japanese government and bureaucracy it's not really about kaiju at all Um, meanwhile like you said in Pacific Rim it's like just straight up it's monsters fighting which I love I love Mm -hmm. that I'm so pro that like it is just my favorite but It's not breaking new ground in terms of what kinds of stories we tell. Okay, this is our final segment called Research Hole. You know what a research hole is. You've fallen into them before. So, Catherine, what research hole did you fall into in the past couple weeks? Food crime. So, <laughs> food crime! So I, I love heists. I love heist fiction. 
because I like to watch plans and I like cons and I like all of that stuff. And I also like it, too, because the, the people who are hurt aren't really hurt and there's very little violence in that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, it's food friendly crime. and happy. <laughs> food crime takes that to a whole other level, though, like, depending on the kind of food crime, people can get hurt. Um, so there's two. There are actually a couple. There's the classic now classic because Netflix had a, a, a documentary about it or an episode of a documentary about the Canadian maple syrup heist. Yes. Oh, my God. I love that. The strategic time. maple syrup reserve. That's great. In Italy, there's a bank in the Emilia Romagna region of Italy that takes as collateral for loans from cheesemakers, Parmesan cheese, because it takes so long to mature it properly that you have to they don't have money while they're waiting for their cheese to mature. And if they want it to mature for as long as you legally need to slash like actually want it to be good because they're all artisan cheesemakers, you won't have any money for a long time. So you can get a loan for it. And then they the bank keeps it in their cheese vault. <laughs> wow. Wait, do, how many years does it take for it's like cheese? 15 maybe. Wow. wow. So that is a long term yeah. investment. Yeah. It is. Um, and I read a whole thing. It's like they take it 80 percent of the value of cheese at the time because of the fluctuations in Parmesan cheese prices. The bank also leases out space in their cheese vault to other people who don't need to put it up for collateral, but want a space that is controlled and inspected all the time. There was a heist of cheese from, oh, from yeah. them, which I love. And then in the 70s, Amex stock price dropped 50% in the salad oil disaster, oh. where this uh, con man took out loans and put up for collateral the soybean oil. And the tankers came in, and it was just a few feet of oil on top of water. Oh, man. That's that's oh. actually a lot like what happened with the maple syrup yeah. ice, because they filled the maple <laughs> syrup containers with, with water, water. And yeah. then later they were like, wait, maple syrup shouldn't make these containers rust. Why are they rusting? Oh, yeah. it's because all of our maple syrup is actually water. Yeah. So oh. food crime. Love food crime. Food all crime right. is fascinating. Is there a particular example of a food crime story that you would recommend? I was listening to a podcast, and then I was just Googling it because I love food crime in drunken bars, been like, I'm going to write the cheese heist movie. Just you wait. <laughs> okay, so the recommendation is Catherine's future cheese heist movie. Yes. All right. Okay, nice. Good. Charlie, tell me about your research hole. So my research hole has been about a song called Ride on Time by an Italian, an Italy house group called Black Box from 1989. I remember hearing it when I was in the UK. So it was not a, Italo Disco. It was like Italo House. It was like wow. the successor so of Italo Disco. Post Italo Disco. It was All in right. 1989. It really kind of jump-started the Italo House genre. It was like a huge hit. When If you were in England in 1989, you would not be able to avoid hearing this song. It was like the biggest hit in the UK in that year. It was like inescapable. It never did anything in the States, but it was huge in Europe. And basically what it was, was they took this song from like, I think 1979 or 80, this disco song by, the straight up disco song by an American R&B singer, Lolita Holloway, who is one of the most amazing singers of all time. She died a few years ago. She had an incredible voice. You've probably heard her in a lot of stuff. She's the female vocalist in the song, Relight My Fire by Dan Hartman. She's in, she was in a bunch of things. She was incredible. And she did this song in like 79, 80, called Love Vibration. And basically they just took her vocal part from that song, chopped it up, changed it around a tiny bit, put some house beats on it, and released it as a single and it became a huge hit. And the original song hadn't been hit at all. Nobody had really heard it outside of a few like gay clubs in you know the late 70s, early 80s. But this new version, which basically was just the same song but remixed, became a huge hit and they didn't pay her. I think they paid her record label a tiny amount of money, but they didn't give her any money. So she 
understandably freaked out because suddenly her voice was on like one of the biggest hits of the year, at least in Europe, and she wasn't getting any credit and she wasn't getting any money. And so they finally did pay her off with a small amount of money. But then this song was like in the middle of its like being number one in the British charts. And they had a freak out and decided to stop pressing the version with her vocals on it, rush back into the studio, hire another singer who was a British woman named Heather Smalls, who later became the lead singer of a group called M People, and just got her to copy the vocal parts from the 1979 single as closely as possible, like exactly the same inflection, same everything, but with a Manchester accent. And they didn't tell anybody that this was a new version of the song. They kind of called it the massive mix. But basically, they just sneaked it into stores and they were just like, sell this version instead. And so the radio stations were still playing the version with Lolita Holloway's vocals, but people were no longer able to buy that version. They had to buy the version with this British lady's vocals in their place. And a lot of people still don't know the the difference between the two versions. And like there's <laughs> compilations that have one or the other, depending on which they licensed it from. And to this day, it's a huge, like important hit in the UK. And a lot of people have never heard the original version and don't realize how much it was basically just completely just a, re- a remix with slight, you know, chopping up of this single from 79. And so, I don't know, I hope people hunt down Lolita Holloway's stuff because she was incredible, and I feel like she was done wrong. I think she was probably doing food crime. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think Still in cheese in Italy. She should yeah. have been doing food crime. Yeah, she, she should, should have, have been gone doing to Italy food and crime. stolen some cheese. I feel like we've had enough research hole. Um, I'm going to save my research hole for another day. And, Catherine, where can we find out more about your amazing output as a cultural critic? The best place to find me is actually on Twitter, which I am on too much, uh, which is K under dash Trendacosta, T-R-E-N-D-A-C-O-S-T-A. I still write freelance cultural critiques, and also I just dump brain thoughts onto Twitter about cultural stuff when I have no other outlet. Which is awesome. It's Yeah, yeah you should definitely be following Catherine on Twitter because she her opinions are correct. Yes. So, yeah. All right. So thank you so much for listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. We have a Patreon. You can support us there. We'd really appreciate it so that we don't have to pay for this by feeding pigeons in the park. Because, you know, pigeons have a lot of money, but humans have more. So we really appreciate your support. Um, You can follow us on any of your favorite podcast distributors like Apple Podcasts. Please review us there. Please follow us on Twitter once you're done reading all of Catherine's comments. You can follow us at OOACpod on Twitter. Our amazing producer is Veronica Simonetti at Women's Audio Mission in San Francisco. The music is provided by Chris Palmer. And thanks. We'll hear you again in two weeks. Well, you'll hear us again. We'll all be hearing each other again. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks again for being here, Catherine.